Please pray with me. All merciful God, as we stand with Joshua and the Israelites and the Canaanites on the plains of Jericho, as we stand amazed and wondering what this all means, we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable to you. O God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, Amen. Amen. Today you and I have a rare treat. In a few moments you're going to hear Christopher LaRosa's deeply thoughtful, provocative, and arrestingly beautiful musical take on the story we just heard, the story of Joshua at the walls of Jericho. When Christopher was a section leader in this choir and a graduate student locally, two of our members, David Flanagan and Jeff Klein, commissioned him to compose this extraordinary work, which our choir has been working months on. And I just have to tell you, it's a challenging work, which they're doing amazingly. David and Jeff wanted a piece that honored the ongoing relationship we have with our choir and with the Boston University Trombone Choir. And given the central role of the horns blowing in this story, Joshua was a good fit. And you're going to hear in this musical piece how Christopher has been faithful to the story, to the cries of the people, to Joshua's faithfulness, to following Moses as the leader of the Israelites. You'll also hear in this piece the powerful role that sound can have in bringing about change. It's almost eerie power to do this, even crumbling walls, whether the walls that separate people from their long-held dreams or the walls that have calcified in our hearts. However, I have to say that in choosing the sixth chapter of Joshua, they gave the preacher and the worship leaders a doozy of a passage. This is one of those excerpts of Scripture that makes you wonder, is this really the kind of faith that I want to follow? Because when you look at this passage and pack the whole book of Joshua with a modern progressive lens, it goes from being a story about a valiant hero in his quest for liberation of his people to a really horrifying tale of genocide and conquest. It's somehow fitting that we're reflecting on it on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, a war of unforeseen and unimaginable carnage that forever changed the way a lot of our Western philosophers, theologians, and artists would look at life. We call it Veterans Day, but it was formerly Armistice Day, a day commemorated for the laying down of arms and that we're doing this at the end of a fortnight that has seen a maddening number of mass shootings in this land, it seems appropriate that we choose this text. As horrifying as the story is, we can safely say that in Joshua's time, warfare was a generally accepted method for getting what you wanted, not just in the land of Canaan, but all over the world. Certainly among the native peoples in our own land, territorial warfare was the traditionally accepted form of real estate transactions. I want the land you're sitting on, so we're going to fight over it and see who's strong enough to win it. And if you look all over the world, you can see how this has been happening since there were human beings with both territorial and warring instincts. You can see how the Europeans, first coming to these lands, might have been inspired by the story of Joshua. How the Puritans, seeing themselves as being on a divine errand in the wilderness, eventually took land from the Wampanoags and Narragansetts through shifty trade gouging in real estate in their righteous mission of a new promised land for religious freedom. 
Or you can see how the westward expanding settlers, backed by the strengthening United States government, would take land after land from the people already settled on them, setting up the kinds of farms and towns that they wanted, relegating some of those people to God-forsaken parts of the land, where they would eventually be surrounded by poverty, addiction, and unemployment. You can easily see how the story of Joshua would be a strong mandate for faithful people fresh from the unspeakable atrocity of the Holocaust would feel divinely inspired and mandated to take land from generations of settled people in order to claim back the holy land, the holy places that they and the power players in the wider international community thought was rightfully theirs. Now, here in the United States, we may think that we don't do this so much anymore, unless, of course, your land has oil, other other resources we need. Then we want to be sure we have adequate control and access. Domestically, we have other kinds of territorial grabs, things like imminent domain or politically motivated gerrymandering or intense real estate battles or hostile corporate takeovers. Now, we tend to consider it more civilized that it's not so much about physical might as financial might. I can afford to buy you out. Now, what do I have to do to squeeze you into a position where you have no other choice but to negotiate with me? We see it happening here in Boston, just like San Francisco and New York, where big city development is making it harder and harder for working and low-income people to live here. And unfortunately, you can even see, and I hate to say this, but you can see why some people might look to Joshua as a biblically sanctioned mandate encouraging people to think that God ordained America to be primarily for white Christians. It's an ugly thing to say, and it's an even uglier thing to believe, but I have to tell you folks, you don't have to look too far in the text to tease out these kind of mandates. The territorial instinct is there, the warring instinct is there, and the text And among us humans, we children of God, whether we think that God sanctions those instincts or not. So I ask again, is this really the faith we want to follow? One that divinely affirms our basest instincts? And I would say a resounding no. Because I want to invite us to think about the story in our faith just a little differently. Joshua and his people clearly thought they were following God's will. They saw that they were following in the footsteps of Moses, honoring the covenant, the relationship that God had set upon them. The promises bestowed to their ancestors, Sarah and Abraham, all of the oppression, the slavery in Egypt, all of the plagues, all the hard work, all the 40 years of long suffering in the wilderness, all the managing to be faithful throughout it all, that's what they fought and died for, this God-blessed promised land. And they're not going to give up now. Now, I cannot speak today for my rabbinical colleagues and how they interpret this passage through their own modern lenses. But for Christians, we believe that people like Jesus the prophetically proclaimed Prince of Peace tried to teach us a different way, a way where the greatest commandments were not only to love God with all our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strengths, but also, and equally important, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Not just the neighbor next door, not just the neighbor you see face-to-face, as we heard last week from our preacher, but the neighbor across the world, the neighbor at your border, the neighbor inside and outside the walls, the neighbor who is sitting on the land that you want. 
This is the Savior who taught us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, who came that we all might have life more abundantly, who wanted us to find a still more excellent way. And there are many of us who believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, like the work of Moses and Joshua, is a liberating work, a liberating gospel, a telling of good news, one that opens up more possibilities, one that breaks down barriers, one that tears down walls, one that works creatively in a way in which everyone may benefit, where no one is slaughtered. Because what usually needs to be slaughtered are outdated, worn-out, exclusionary, discriminatory ideas that hold us back, that keep us from living peaceably with one another, from learning to share what God has provided abundantly for us. There are some of us who believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the liberating missions of Moses and Joshua work their way out when tyrants are brought down and people can run their own governments, when slaves are emancipated, when women have equal participation and authority in all areas of life, when nonviolent resistance overcomes war, when swords are beaten into plowshares, when we can all sit at this table of siblinghood and sing together, free at last, thank God, all merciful, we are all of us free at last. Certainly the slaves who sang that old spiritual in the cotton and tobacco fields of the American South about Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down could think of Joshua tearing down the walls of the institution of chattel slavery and the plantation economy. Some in the civil rights movement have compared Martin Luther King Jr. to a Moses who said that he had been to the mountaintop and seen over to the promised land, but he might not. In fact, he did not get there with them. They say like even an Andrew Young or a Jesse Jackson was Joshua, helping lead the people where the original leader could not take them. Some say that about the Reverend William Barber now. I imagine that the caravanners making their way to our border at this very hour may see a divine mandate to claim their place as children of God, to live without fear of oppressive governments and gang violence, to remain with their loved ones, and why not knock at the door at the richest, most powerful empire on the face of the earth, one that has traditionally been welcoming of the stranger, the refugee, the asylum seeker, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to break free. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't even be here. Sisters, brothers, siblings, all of us, there are walls around us that need tearing down. The prison industrial complex that chews people up and spits them out often worse than they were before, a recalcitrant institutional racism, unchecked corporate power, or as indicated on the cover of our order of worship, detention centers where asylum seekers are wrongly or unjustly imprisoned. There are glass ceilings and cinder block facades that all need dismantling. And perhaps most importantly, there are walls in our own hearts, walls that keep us from loving as fully or as imaginatively as Christ might want us to do. In my mind, in my heart, The promised land is that place where war is no more, where every child is valued and welcomed, where every human being can live in dignity and peace, 
where there is plenty of good room for all of God's children, plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of shelter. And you and I honor the legacy, the dream of our faithful ancestors when we keep working, when we keep fighting for that promised land. As long as we keep that dream alive, the promised land is still a possibility. But when we kill it in ourselves, we kill it off one person at a time. So you and I, my faithful siblings, are not done until we bring the promised land into being. As I invite our musicians to come forward and as they cry out, as they blow their horns, I invite us to remember what is worth fighting for. Where does God need our passions, our gifts, the fire in our bellies, and what does it mean to have the courage to follow what God wants? to destroy what no longer has any use or meaning or salvation, and to see what God has waiting for us in the dream of the promised land. Amen.